We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host, Nick Filato, and tonight we've had ourselves, what, 24 hours to digest the draft. The draft is now, what, 24 hours concluded from the end of day three. Obviously not too much work on the undrafted free agent front, which is just honestly a sign that of how far this team has come, I think, and how far the roster building has come to the fact that they don't need to go out there and pepper all these undrafted free agents because they simply don't have the roster spots for them because the Giants are deep and super talented roster really the exception of everywhere but the offensive line there's not much depth there but we'll get to that of course on this show but tonight what we wanted to do after having the 24 hours to digest the actual draft is to provide our key takeaways and some draft grades for each pick and then an overall draft grade on the 2021 New York Giants football draft so before we do any of that Nick think the fans want to know my man (laughs) what did you eat the rest of draft weekend to make up for having those six boneless wings yeah so I actually went out to chopped and I got three salads to set myself up for the next three days and for those of you who do not know chopped is a place that basically only serves salads and wraps I got three different types of salads customized them did not get a lot of dressing just get a little lime juice little lemon juice squirted in there you know it's a nice healthy healthy meal for the next three days to make up for the fact that I put six or five maybe boneless wings into my body oh it was only five so you overstated and overshot it maybe maybe so you're doing Honestly, that to make it seem like you were having a worse night eating than you actually did probably probably <laughs> see you're always trying to impress the fans here with the, with the eating habits nick but they're not going to be impressed until they hear that you took down a slice or two of new jersey pizza man like we live in this great state of new jersey you've got unbelievable pizza all around you 
have a slice, man. You're an Italiano. You're a paisan. Have a yourself paisan. a slice. You know, even you can even pull it. You know what? You want to do something different? I don't blame you. You want to pull George Costanza and put the calzones on a pedestal <laughs> and get, have yourself a calzone, a little mozzarella, with a little, you know, gravy in there, a little, you know, uh, nice. Uh, stop with the gravy. It's not like the gravy. No, it's sauce. Eh, I think it's gravy. I think only Italians from Northern Jersey call it gravy. Look, man, gravy's earned, okay? Sauce is something that you buy at the store, and I don't think a lot of people are out there actually making their sauce. And if you actually make your sauce, then you can call it gravy. But if not, just call it sauce. That's my take, at least. You can do your own thing. Well, now you just offended a lot of Italians (laughs) who listen to this podcast, but none more than I offended uh, those who were fans of Notre Dame on the last podcast. I've been getting a lot of hate for that one. I... I, I apologize to all you Notre Dame fans. I mean, what can I say? You guys were unbelievable in that college football playoff. I was so <laughs> glad to be watching your team. It was just made for really entertaining TV TV for sure. But Yeah, so I have a couple takes with that. So I'm, uh, like I said on Twitter, I have a soft spot for Notre Dame because my old man is a Notre Dame fan. Yes. But I will always go up to my dad after every one of the games where Notre Dame makes it to the national championship and embarrasses themselves, and I just say one word. Frauds. <laughs> Frauds. And it's similar, and I'm a Yankee fan as well, it's similar to the New York Yankees. Every time October rolls around and everybody has all these high hopes and then they face a team and there's a little bit of struggle and they all forget to hit. And I just go, oh, frauds. They're just absolute frauds. Yeah, you're, you're so right, Nick. Those poor Yankees with their 27 championships. Those poor, poor Yankees. Uh, dude, I I can go on a whole diatribe. It must be so right hard to be a Yankees fan. I can't even imagine oh. as a Mets fan over here. We've been so lucky. Dan, I'm talking about the recent Yankees. Every year they're supposed to win it. Every year they're the favorite, and they never end up getting it done. I mean, like I said, it's it's a tough life the, to be a Yankees The Yankees, fan. from a historical standpoint, blow any other baseball team out of the water, obviously. But right now, as currently constructed, they're always supposed to win, and then they always forget to hit the damn baseball every time they get into October. It's just facts. I'll, I'll be sure to pour one out for the Yankees and their fans. <laughs> it's, not what I'm, it's not what I'm insinuating, whatever, <laughs> but I feel like you're missing the point. I might be, but you know what? It's hard for me to feel so bad for those Yankee fans. But how about Giants fans, man? I mean, let's get to this draft. It was... Quite the draft. Now that we've looked at it as a whole, we've, like I said, digested it. Let's start with you, Nick. What's your key takeaway from this draft? I would say if you could only wrap up one thing, what would be your key takeaway from this draft? And at the same time, you know, go into if you are pleased with this draft. Let's start with there. What's your key takeaway? And if you came away pleased with what the Giants did? An old dog learned some new tricks. That's what I, that was my key takeaway. Everybody for, it seems like years now, I've been bashing Dave Gettleman for his immovability during the draft, just in general. This was, what, his ninth draft as a general manager between the Giants and the Carolina Panthers, and he didn't trade back once. He traded back twice, and then he traded up to get a guy that he really, really coveted in the third round, which was Aaron Robbins. And so that would be my key takeaway because we don't know how much longer Dave Gettleman is going to be the general manager of this team, but just the fact that we kind of seen him change the ways that change some of the things that he has done in the past also kind of points to, hey, this is a big influence of Joe Judge, who I think may be around for a long while with this current roster, unless things just really, really implode with this current roster. I think Joe Judge may be around for a while. So that would be my key takeaway is just the aggressiveness and the ability to have the, I guess, foresight to be like, hey, next year's draft's going to be more important. Let's get 10 picks. Let's acquire more talent there. And then we'll just see what happens. Yeah, I think that's an excellent takeaway. And I think in response to that, I'd say this. If I'm going to sit here like I have 
and say that I think the general manager is ultimately the one who pulls that final card and makes that final decision. As I've said multiple times on this podcast from conversations that I've had, one with a former NFL general manager who's currently working in another team's front office, it didn't go so well for him at the end of his general manager tenure, and then for a former head coach, John Fox, who off the record has told me a lot of things about the NFL and management that lead me to believe that ultimately it is the GM pulling that final string, and there are even times and I'm not saying this is the case with the Giants, but there are even times with other franchises where the head coach and the GM will disagree on a massive decision, whether that be the next quarterback of their franchise, something of that nature, which has happened before, and the GM gets the final say. So if I'm going to sit here and make that statement, which I am, then I'm going to have to give Dave Gettleman credit for, like you said, an old dog learning a very new trick. And I really never thought I'd see the day where Dave Gettleman traded back. I know, you know, he's talked about in pre-draft pressers. He's tried to at times. It didn't work out with the value, yada, yada. But I ultimately thought that throughout his tenure as Giants general manager, all we'd see is constant examples of the guy was too good to pass up on. We had him ranked too high on our board and we couldn't trade back because we didn't want to take a chance of losing player X that we felt is so much we our scouts felt is just we did such a better job than the NFL on you know we figured this one out and he didn't do that I mean it was an unbelievable draft for me he traded first two draft picks Dave Gettleman not just one even if he had just traded the first rounder or the second rounder it would have been a surprise to me he traded his first two picks and more so than that and this leads into my biggest takeaway here it feels like the Giants had a plan and it feels to me at least like they had a plan for the first time in a very long time and that's oh. with things coming off schedule, too. I mean, yes. if the Eagles don't trade with the Cowboys and jump over the Giants, we're looking at a totally different draft here. The Giants probably go with DeMonta Smith. But that is part of what I feel like when I say I feel like they had a plan. I think going in, their plan was if we don't have a chance to draft Pitts, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, and Jamar Chase, if none of them on the board, we're going to trade back. We're going to be aggressive in trying to trade back. And I think that's exactly what we saw because I think that trade that they had with the Bears was lined up before their pick and before even the Eagles jumped ahead of them. That would be my guess. And I think that they so told the Bears, look, if Fields drops to this spot and we can't get the player we want, we're open to this trade. Let's get the details hammered out. And they did get those details hammered out. And I don't think it came together all in a matter of 10 minutes there. I think that's that would be, uh, I think, a, a stretch to think that it's possible, honestly, for the Giants and for Ryan Pace, uh, Bears general manager, and Dave Gettleman to hammer out those kind of fine, minute details in a span of like six, seven minutes before the Giants come off the clock. And I think that's part of what I'm talking about. They had the foresight here to know that, listen, we have this group of blue chip playmakers Our plan going in is we want to get a playmaker in the first round, somebody who can alter how our offense is called, how Jason Garrett can call the plays, alter how Daniel Jones can run the offense, and ultimately add a little bit more of a spark to a group that didn't quite have it for whatever reason in 2020. And they had a group. Kadarius Toney was leader of that group. They had a group after the big three receivers, and they felt like if those big three receivers were off the board, they could trade back all the way to 20 and still get either Tony or worst case scenario, I believe they probably had a few other guys in that range just after Tony that they felt they can get. And that takes pre-draft planning. That takes foresight. That doesn't even factor in another thing that they you know, did an excellent job of here, which was understanding the importance and value of these 2022 draft picks. And we've talked about this, but this was part of their plan as well. Again, it just feels like they had this plan coming into the draft. We're sitting here. We understand the value of next year's draft. We understand the value. And this also works into what Joe Judge said on day three. Joe Judge said, look, when it comes to these players, 
I need to make sure that I'm comfortable having them in the building, that they're going to be a fit for our culture. And that's not always easy to do over Zoom. When you have the chance to meet with them at the Senior Bowl, it gives you a little bit more insight. And I think next year, when they have this boatload of picks, two ones, two threes, uh, two fours, and all their picks, they're going to have a lot of prospects to draft to go along with what you said earlier, Nick, which is a lot of free agents to make up for on depth for the depth of the roster. And they're going to have a chance to meet with all these kids. And they're going to really have a good chance, in my mind, to get the best prospects in that class. So again, I just feel like my biggest takeaway here, Nick, would be that they had a plan going in. And it really feels like for the first time they had a they, they used foresight in their thinking. They thought ahead to next year to make the decisions for this year. And I just love to see it because, man, they ended up with Kadarius Toney and Aziz Ojolari with their first two picks. And they traded down in both spots. And in all likelihood, they could have drafted Aziz Ojolari at 11, Kadarius Tony at 42, and it would have been, we probably would have viewed it as a pretty solid draft. Yeah, I don't think Kadarius would have even come close to getting to sure. 42, to be honest. But I, I would uh, correct one thing. I think we saw some uh, foresight last year as well with that draft, and just so happens that Joe Judge had an something to do with that mm-hmm. as well just with the investment in a player like matt Parrott at 99 hopefully we can see the uh see the fruits of those labor be born this year to be honest and see him actually become a above average starter because you had this one year of development you got some snaps under your belt now some positive tape some negative tape hopefully that can be refined now and he, he can be the right tackle because i'm sure we're going to get into the offensive line but i i'm just going to say this we didn't necessarily expect them to invest in the tackle position. We were really, really heavy on wanting the New York Giants to go after the guard position. And I'm still, that's still something that concerns me. I see people on Twitter talking about, oh, we shouldn't be worried and stuff. I'm like, how not though? We, I'm, I'm not saying that it's going to implode. This Everyone could develop and everything could be all hunky-dory and amazing. But at the same time, if that doesn't happen, should we be shocked? This offensive line was 31st last year. They improved down the stretch as run blockers, but pass protection was horrendous. And then we saw it with Vance Joseph, who just absolutely just took advantage of that offensive line's protections. And that's not something that we should, that's not something that we should aspire to see ever again. You're 100% right, Nick. And it wasn't just Vance Joseph down the stretch. Everyone talks about how much this line improved down the stretch. And it seems like they're just totally ignoring that Cardinals game, which was down the stretch, and that Baltimore Ravens game game where Wink Martindale also did the exact same thing. And in the process of blowing up their pass protections, they also blew up the running game because you're not going to be able to get a running game going when your offensive line can't pass protect. And when your offensive line is not blocking well, none of it matters because there's not going to be a million situations per game where you can just run the football and move forward in that regard. So people seem to be ignoring those two games for whatever reason. I'm not exactly sure why, but I agree with you. I mean, we'll get to the offensive line a little bit because again, like I would love to hear your take on this and maybe we could probably do it now. Like we both don't feel comfortable with this offensive line. I think that's fair to say. We're obviously hopeful that literally all five of them can take a step forward because all five need to take a step forward. It's not just like, and no one on that line right now is perfect. You don't have a Marshall Yonda anywhere on that line. Like, can Thomas be that? Sure, but that requires him taking a step forward. And Nick Gates was a good player last year. He's by no means uh, a, um, trying to think of a, a Rodney Hudson type or any of those like unbelievable centers right now. He's a good player for them, but he also can stand to take a step forward. So I guess my question for you would be, we went into this draft, one of my rules or one of the steps that I had for a perfect Giants draft said, don't ignore the offensive line, right? So looking back now with the draft over, one would think I'd be disappointed or I'd think they made a mistake because part of my 
blueprint was not to ignore the offensive line. But I look back at this draft, man, and I just don't feel like they made a mistake because I don't feel like there was an offensive lineman they should have taken at 20. Okay, a case can be made that Rashawn Slater should have been the pick at 11, no trade back. But I'll tell you what, I'd rather Kadarius Toney, the Bears' first round pick, the Bears' fourth round pick, and the Bears' fifth round pick than Rashawn Slater. I mean, this is just going to be me for the rest of time as an analyst of the Giants. I'm just going to take Kadarius Toney and the first round pick plus the four and the five over just about anyone. I definitely would have taken him. I already said it. I would have taken him over Smith. I'm, I'm ha- I think this worked out better that the Eagles traded. Really, only Jamar Chase and Pitts are the only two that would have been like, eh, maybe I'd rather the blue, this blue, blue, blue chip. But so I don't really think they made a mistake there. At the Aziz pick at 50, I do not think there was anyone I would have rather over Aziz on the offensive line. And then everybody talks about what about that Aaron Robinson trade up? To be completely honest with you, Nick, there's not a single offensive lineman I prefer over Aaron Robinson right now. So that, and then once you get to that fourth round where they took Ellerson Smith, of course I didn't want like Trey Smith or the Deontay Browns of the world over Ellerson Smith. Like that would have been awful value and forcing a need on the offensive line, forcing a pick at a need. So they just kind of seem to just by circumstance miss out on this really good offensive line class. And ultimately it wasn't the deepest offensive line class. It was really good, but all teams were onto that, Nick. And there were offensive lines flowing off the board. Even like Brady Christensen went off at 70. I mean, it was just a constant flow of offensive. Jalen Mayfield at 68, a guy who I wanted for the Giants. I mean, there just never seemed to be a spot where the offensive linemen were dropping. All teams were on to him. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Improving their offensive lines this year. And it just felt to me like the Giants didn't do anything wrong. They were just, it was kind of circumstance that they didn't end up with any of them. I 100% agree. Circumstance. And that doesn't mean, like you said, the Giants necessarily did anything wrong. I would rather have Aaron Robinson than say somebody who I liked, Ben Cleveland, who I feel like would have fit well with what the New York Giants want to do on offense. But I would rather have Aaron Robinson because he's a talented player. He was really high on their board. So I have to agree. But that doesn't mean we should also be. I don't know. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have reservations about this offensive line. I still think we can have reservations about the offensive line, but acknowledge that the circumstances of the draft didn't lead to the Giants selecting an offensive line. And I think that's completely fair to say. Credit Karma has always been there to help you make better financial decisions. And now they want to help you even more. With a Credit Karma money spend account, you can be rewarded for good money habits. Credit Karma money is a brand new checking account where you can win cash reimbursements for making purchases. Just pay with your debit card, and if you win, you'll be notified on the spot, and your Instant Karma cash will be added back to your spend account. Open your FDIC-insured spend account for free. There's no minimum balance requirements, no overdraft fees, 
and free withdrawals from a network of over 50,000 ATMs. And when you make a purchase between June 8th and June 30th, you'll automatically be entered to win $1 million. Right now, visit creditkarma.com backslash winmoney to open your free account and start winning instant karma. Go to creditkarma.com backslash winmoney to sign up for free and start winning. That's creditkarma.com slash winmoney. Instant Karma is sponsored by Credit Karma. No purchase necessary. Exclusions and terms apply. See rules. Banking services provided by MVB Bank Incorporated. Member FDIC. Maximum balance and transfer limits apply. Yeah, no doubt. All right, that leads me to my next key takeaway from this draft. And that was that despite trading first of their two, each of their first two picks, they added, they, they accomplished all of this in one class, which to me is really just so impressive. They added talent to their shallowest position, big time talent to edge, which was clearly their shallowest position. Like you can argue guard was shallower. Okay, I'm fine accepting that, but not fully because with the Achilles injury to Lorenzo Carter, I don't feel comfortable there. I don't love Eugene Zimenez, and then you obviously have a Denebo and uh, nice. Yeah, finally hit that name right <laughs> one time. But that's to me like you could argue like that group of a Denebo and those guys is about the same as what you have in Will Hernandez, Andrew. Tom, I'm sorry, Will Hernandez, Shane Lemieux, and Zach Fulton. It's not too different. So I think they did a good job of adding talent to their shallowest position and big time upside talent. By the way. They added a unique skill set to the skill group, something they did not have. Kadarius Tony is not on this roster. No one anywhere is anywhere near Kadarius Tony. The biggest argument, the only person you could argue is anywhere close to Tony would be a healthy Barkley. And now he's a different player than Tony. He's also stronger than Tony. He's also bigger than Tony. He also has more straight line speed than Tony. So, but he does have some of the similar bursts, some similar tackle breaking ability, back contact balance, all those things. But I still think they added a unique skill set to the skill group. And they continued to double down. These are the big three for me, the three pillars. They added talent to the skill group. They added unique, I'm sorry, unique skill set to the skill group. They added talent to their shallowest position edge. And they continued to double down on that analytics-driven approach. That pass coverage is extremely important to winning football games. And they didn't flinch when a guy like Aaron Robinson, who they loved in this class, they probably had a top 35 grade on this kid. I gotta be honest with you. I bet they had a borderline one too because they traded up and said, we couldn't risk not getting him. And I know it was only at 71, but a lot of sites I see and a lot of analysts I trust had him as a top 50 player. And I really like what I've seen so far. So that would be the thing for me, Nick. In addition to that, my second key takeaway is they added those three pillars to the to the roster. Yeah, getting the secondary bolstered, that wasn't something that we originally anticipated that they would do. And I was actually thinking, I was like, what if we came out with a mock draft before this <laughs> trap and put Aaron Robinson in the third round with a trade-up? How many Giants fans would have slammed that and said, what about Darnay Holmes? But now that it actually happened, you're not really hearing that because a lot of good tape has come out on the player like Aaron Robinson. People have familiarized themselves on what he can do. And there's the element that, hey, this guy's a lot of press man ability and he has a lot of versatility he can play star that little safety hybrid linebacker type of player he can play on the boundary if something does happen to a dory jackson i think he's more probably um he's more apt to play inside to be honest and i think one of the most interesting position battles by far is going to be and i brought this up on previous podcast is going to be darnay holmes and aaron robinson it's a good problem to have but adding those secondary pieces and even someone like rodarius williams who may not have the kind of athletic ability you want ideally to to play or to start cornerback but has good length i mean didn't measure it but when you watch the tape he plays with good length and he's very very aggressive in run support that's a solid pick at what 201 and then you invest two picks into your edge position ellerson smith and aziz ojalari two totally different players those guys are 
total opposite types of players. But that's what Patrick Graham needs, man. He yeah. likes versatility. He likes doing different things with his fronts. And both of those guys can come in and I don't think Ellison Smith's going to start, but I think Aziz Ojolari can come in and start, and Ellison Smith can be a situational pass rusher until he can be a little bit, until he can gain a little bit more strength and be better at the point of attack, which can come. I mean, this guy just put on like 60 pounds in the last couple of years and maintained this level of athletic ability. So he could get a little bit stronger. And if that happens, then you found yourself a starter. And I mean, if he puts on even a little bit more weight, he can kick inside a little bit more, or he could play with a two-point stance. So he he's an interesting one for sure. Yeah, the sky is truly the limit for Ellerson Smith when you consider the body, the frame, mm-hmm. and again, how young he is to the position, how young he is to growing into his body. I mean, like you said, he puts on another... He's, he was talking about how he really thought that a goal for him was... Because he played... The last season he put on film, he said he was at 240. And he's like, a goal was to get to the 260 by the senior bowl to show them how I look at 260. If he gets that up to 270, which I think he can easily grow into it. Like, if you look at his body type, there's still plenty of room felt. It's similar to what we said last year around this time about Matt Parrott. We looked at Matt Parrott, and you could tell immediately by breaking down his frame that he had a lot of good weight to add to that frame. And it looks like so far from the workouts he's done this offseason and some of the pictures that have surfaced that he has added a lot of good weight to that frame, Matt Parrott. And I think ultimately he probably will finalized somewhere in like 10 to 15 to 20 pounds range of added weight from where he played at UConn. I think something similar could definitely happen for Ellerson Smith. And like you said, once he gets to that level and that weight and that strength, he can then kick inside and help them from the interior on some pass rushing downs. So then he becomes a whole different kind of weapon for them. But I want to kind of break down those three points I talked about earlier and see kind of what you think about um, a little bit more in depth on them. So I started by saying that they added talent to their shallowest position and that was edge. I want to say this, Nick, and I want to see where you stand. In my estimation, Nick, I think that Aziz Ojolari was the single best value pick the Giants have made in the Dave Gettleman regime in four draft classes. Now, obviously, I wasn't as high on him as you were. I wasn't as high as anyone in this edge class. But I still ultimately saw him as a top 30-ish talent. And that doesn't even factor in that he was easily the cookie cutter best fit for Patrick Graham's system out of the top edges in this class. Now you could probably argue that um, the kid from Miami is fit for any system. Uh, what's his name? The 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 kid with the all Jalen Phillips. Jalen Phillips. I don't know why I was blanking on that name. It's been a long weekend. You could argue that he was a cookie cut fit for any system, but honestly, I think if you look at Aziz Ojolari's profile and his skill set in his game, it's just so perfect for Graham's system. So when you factor that in, plus that I already had him as a top 30 talent, and you get that at 50 overall, I look back. The last pick I felt this way about, where I just was like, this is insane value, was Lorenzo Carter in the 2018 draft class. I had a top 30 grade on Carter going into that class. And I remember Josh Norris really, because I was big on Carter and I didn't see anyone else who was huge on him. A lot of people were like, yeah, he's pretty good, maybe top 50 prospect. And I was looking at Josh Norris's rankings just before the draft. He had him coming in his top 25, right at number 25, which I thought was super interesting. And obviously it hasn't worked out perfectly, although me and you both kind of feel low-key that he was going to have a breakout season last year if it wasn't for that unlucky Achilles against Achilles injury against the Cowboys. But I think that Aziz Ojolari would actually jump just ahead of him and take the cake as probably, in my mind, the best value pick they've ever made. Yeah, I mean, the knee definitely has something to do with that, which benefits the Giants. But I would actually say the same thing that you said. I think Lorenzo Carter was an excellent value pick. And like you said, it hasn't really worked out quite yet. But Lorenzo Carter is a very interesting player, and he has even more athletic ability than someone like Aziz Ojolari now. Will he maintain that now after an Achilles injury? I 
it's hard to say, to be honest, but I really hope that they can get both those Bulldogs on the field together because I think that could be a really interesting defense. I mean, remember with Lorenzo Carter, man, and James Betcher's system, they weren't aligning him up on the edge and having him pin his ears back. He was playing some, like, Sam linebacker inside, and then sometimes they would align him just that Mike linebacker have him drop into coverage because he was athletic enough to do it and he was long enough to do it. But I would like to see him full season, pin your ears back, go and rush the passer. That's when I would really like to see Lorenzo Carter because I do believe he has more bend than even yes. someone like Aziz Ojolari. He just hasn't really had the chance to showcase that. He was raw coming out of Georgia. I think I think Aziz is a little bit more refined, better technically, and better against the run than Lorenzo was. But, but Lorenzo Carter, man, if he's able to come back healthy, I, I do believe he's another player that we shouldn't be sleeping on. Yeah, if Carter somehow comes back healthy, which there hasn't been a really good track record of people coming back healthy off the torn yeah, Achilles. Sadly. But if he can buck the odds and break that trend, he does have still the mo- the best um, burst plus edge bend in the combo on this team by far, still in my opinion. And I don't think it's close. I mean, you look at that Patriots game a couple years ago where he ripped off the edge for that sack fumble that almost had the Giants upsetting the Patriots. That was Daniel Jones' first game. That was still during the better years, but at the same time, you know, it showed. I mean, he didn't have all those snaps, like you said, pinning Zier back and rushing the passer. But when he did... He showed some good signs, and so I agree with you on that for sure. And then I think you mix that in with somebody like Aziz Ojolari, who I think is a little bit further along in his pass rushing moves, and I think he's got a little bit of a better get-off, even though you would think Lorenzo Carter should based on his raw talent, but I feel like, I don't know what it is, I guess he's just really practiced it and done a really good job of repetition with it, but Aziz just seems to have a really nice get-off right off the right off that snap. Um, yeah, and he uses his hands very well, yes. to, like with the stab in the inside arm and then the chop. I would actually say Ellerson Smith is somebody who has low-key maybe a little bit more juice than Lorenzo Carter, and he also has Ben. But that Patriot game, uh, when, when Daniel Jones went up to Foxborough and threw the first touchdown pass against that 2019 Patriots defense, there were some reps there where it was like, wow, this guy, this guy's really starting to show out in his second season. Just sucks that we haven't seen it really since. Yeah, exactly. I mean, injuries are going to happen. Unfortunately, this one was an ACL. I'd prefer it would have been an ACL. Achilles are just tough, but we'll see what happens there. Who knows? But I will say this, in addition to what you said a little bit earlier on the Z's thing, I'm not so sold that the knee was the reason that he was available. I think it played a small factor, but I stand by it. I think there was always going to be one edge, one of those Aziz or Oa types that was going to drop to around 42. Now, he might have not dropped to 50 without the knee. Maybe that caused that extra eight spot drop, but some of these guys just don't fit systems. Like they're not going to, a 4 3 team is a, a team that plays a four man base a lot, four man down base is just not going to have as much interest in Aziz or Jolari as a team like the Giants. And I feel the same way about a Jason Oa as well, because I don't really see him as a typical 4 3 defensive end either anytime soon. So I think the Ravens probably were considering Ojolari with their first round pick when they took Oa. They were the team that took Oa, right, in the first? Yes. Yeah, so I think they were actually honestly considering. I think ultimately, because there's so little information, they can't get their team doctors out there, yada, yada. They might have actually went with Oa over Aziz just because of that. Because I really feel like he would have fit that Ravens team really well as well. And I think from what everything I've read with this Aziz knee thing, I think ultimately the concern is more long-term than short-term. So the concern is like in 10 years, will this become a problem? Or, it, or past that first contract, maybe not as much as 10, but past that first contract, will this become a first? Will this become a problem? And the Giants can tackle that demon when it when it approaches. Like they can decide that. I'm sure their doctors have a little bit of insight onto this as well. Now they have him in the building. They're going to have get their doctors to fully check out his knee, to have a good read on it. The Giants trust their medical staff, although <laughs> at times in the past, they've given us reason not to trust it, but hopefully they've made some additions there. I mean, the old Giants, they're about 
two or three years ago, the Giants were like consistently one of the most injured teams in the league to like a disgusting extent. It seems like we've been pretty lucky on that front comparatively or relatively speaking to the old Giants injured teams in these last three years. But again, the, those team doctors will get a good chance to look at it. So we'll see what happens there. But I want to turn the page to something else I mentioned, which was adding a unique skill set to the skill group, Nick, because I think ultimately the one big takeaway for me with when you add somebody like Tony to this lineup and when you add somebody like Barkley back into the mix, you already have Ingram, and then you add someone like Galladay, who's basically a big X you can throw to in mostly any one-on-one situation, is it's now or never for Jason Garrett. At this point, he now has another player who, like Barkley, is incredible at forcing missed tackles, incredible at creating yards after contact, hard to bring down, and has open field angle-limiting burst. The potential for that means the potential for Garrett to use a lot of misdirection, a lot of pre-snap motion, and really get the defense off guard and have it so they can really predict for Daniel Jones and make it easier for Daniel Jones to diagnose if he's facing man coverage or zone coverage. And from there, he has a much bigger advantage and a much more likelihood of successful pass play. Or if it's a run play, if it's something like a jet sweep with Kadarius Tony, which we have to see some of. So this is it for Garrett. If we are three, four weeks into the season, Nick, and we're seeing a lot of what we saw last year on film from Garrett from a play calling and play design standpoint, I'm ready to call to pull the plug and say he needs to be fired midseason. Enough is enough. This is it because there's not much more you can do for a coordinator than give him Kadarius Tony and Galladay in one offseason and return him Saquon Barkley. So to me, that's one of the big takeaways here. There's now no excuses for Jason Garrett. Absolutely no excuses. And he has to be creative, man. You have to get Kadarius Toney on the move pre-snap. Switch defensive assignments, man. Use more bunch, more stack formations. Motion people into bunches, out of bunches, into stacks, out of stacks. And that gets younger defensive backs and younger covering defenders to really question their assignments. Sometimes that can lead to blown coverage. Also, you can use split backfield with Saquon Barkley. You could have Daniel Jones in the gun, Saquon Barkley to his left, Darius Tony to his right. right. Have fun linebackers trying to cover these guys. They're really going to force a lot of, I guess you could say, smaller defenders into the box because you're, they're not going to have the athletic ability to cover those two types of guys. And then you can also run the ball off of that, man. There's, right. a, there's a lot of different things Jason Garrett's going to be able to do with this personnel. And like you said, he's not going to be able to have the excuse. Now, right. I, I just... I'm looking at this team, though, and I am curious to see how he's going to allocate the snap counts to these guys because somebody's going to suffer. Just like on defense with the addition of Aaron Robinson, somebody is not going to play because you could only field 11 defenders. You can only field 11 offensive players. So how... What do you think is exactly going to happen with that? Because I think Kenny Galladay is going to be out there. He's going to be the X. Like mm-hmm. that. That's right there. Now, tight end, if Kyle Rudolph's healthy, I think it's going to be Kyle Rudolph over Evan Ingram, and Evan Ingram's going to be used in a more situational-based role. And then, what's going to happen with Kadarius Tony, Sterling Shepard, and Darius Slade? Because honestly, I, I'm not even factoring in Dante Pettis or John Ross at this point. I see a lot of people on Twitter like, oh, what about Pettis and Ross? I'm not even considering them right now. Let's let's really focus on the, the really talented guys, because yeah, we can roll four wide receivers out there. That's not what Jason Garrett's going to do. Jason Garrett loves 12 personnel. He loves 13 personnel. I think we'll see a lot more 11 personnel. Once we start getting into 10 personnel, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. Yeah, I think ultimately, if you're asking me the truth, the truth is that I think I'm going to grow frustrated if Garrett continues to use a heavy dosage of 12 and 13 personnel. I'm Mm going to grow very frustrated because there's very few times where I'm going to prefer 12 personnel this season over the 11 with the group they have. Yeah. I think they need to, because here's the deal. 
Like, you can run your 12, and then you get that Ingram um, and Rudolph combo on there, which is nice. It seems like this is where you get your mismatches, right? Because you have Rudolph as the inline guy, and you can use Ingram in motion and kind of find a nice matchup for Ingram. But honestly, from everything we've seen from Ingram, he's just that on paper. He's not that in reality. But you might have that in reality right away with Kadarius Toney. And if you have Kadarius Toney on the field for more snaps, and again, that would mean having Galladay out there in 11, and then not taking Darius Slayton off the field, who in my mind should be on the field for a lot of snaps. And if you want to, you put Sterling Shepard on. One of those two, to me, I'd rather have him on the field than Evan Ingram. That's just the that's the sick reality of it. And it doesn't mean Ingram will get no snaps in my perfect world. I could put him in over Rudolph on a lot of snaps. I don't need Rudolph out there that many plays. I'm not that high on Rudolph coming off the list, Frank, to be completely honest. Like, that's the signing I'm least confident of the entire offseason. It's the signing I like the least by far of the entire offseason, especially now that they've added these weapons in the draft and in free agency with Galladay, which happened obviously after Rudolph. But for me, it's like... I want Tony out there because I know I can use Tony in motion every single play. I can do what you said, those split backfields. Then you motion him out to the slot. Then you have him run to the other slot, and you kind of dictate if it's man or zone. Then you can, even from the single back set and from the and from the quarterback under center, you can have him running jet sweep. Like, you need to be running some jet sweep action. And it doesn't have to be you hand the ball in jet sweep. You can fake the handoff to Barkley, fake the handoff on the jet sweep to Kadarius Tony. Then he drops back into the pocket, and he pretty much will almost always get a one-on-one with Galladay there. Or if coverage backs off, dump it down to Tony or dump it down to Barkley in the flat. Yeah. And now you have those guys in space and get one-on-one against defenders in the flat. So it doesn't seem that complicated to me. It doesn't really, like, if I had, like, I'm not saying I could do this job. But I think there's a lot of coordinators who could look at this talent group that they have and be like, I can minimize the impact of a mediocre offensive line by playing, calling these play right, plays right and designing these plays right. And you also have a mobile quarterback. You have to consider that as well. And I think something else that we've talked about a lot during the season, and we saw it a little bit, but definitely nearly not enough as we would have liked, is using calling plays off of each other. So you use Kadarius Toney in motion to uh, you give him the jet sweep. Then you give him the jet sweep. And then you don't give him the jet sweep. And you roll Daniel Jones to the right. You have the defense edging to the left. And now you have – I mean, you could run an option football. You could just do whatever. Roll him to the right, have – passing routes from the opposite side of the formation, crossing the defense away from the direction that they're heading in, and then you can get the football into their hands, and then they have space. That's where Evan Ingram would thrive. That's where Darius Slayton, Sterling Shepard would thrive. There's just so many different things you could do now that you added someone like a Darius Tony. They didn't have anybody like this. Right. They didn't have anybody close to this. No. Not this immediate burst type of guy. And again, he doesn't have that kind of long speed, but he has that tackle-breaking ability, and he has that ability to just instill fear into defensive coordinators because you have to worry about him. You're going to have to worry about Saquon Barkley. If you don't figure this out now Dan like you said that's going to be a horrendous look for Jason Garrett now I want to talk to you about the the base play that we saw a lot the counter tray play now that requires a lot of 12 personnel sometimes even 22 Mm -hmm. depending on how you want to classify that H back because remember Caden Smith was one of those pullers I actually look at the roster now and I think Colin Gillespie might even be able to take that spot from Caden Smith because a little bit of film I saw from him when he was with the Texans he was good whenever he got out in the space and was able to block so I'm wondering what that personnel will look like will that be depending on who they roll out say they roll out with 12 personnel with that H back you know that would be probably Kyle Rudolph and then either Gillespie or Caden Smith then Saquon Barkley and then I guess whoever your blo- best blocking wide receivers are which why who would that be Sterling Shepard and Kenny Galladay see that's when you start to get a, into a tricky territory for me Nick because I think if you have a package where you have things like your best blocking receivers on the field you're starting to tip your plays a but, little but bit but you're not with these guys because mm-hmm. 
these guys, Sterling Shepard and Kenny Galladay, are fine receivers. It's not like you're throwing C.J. Board out there. Well, yeah, you're not as long as you're doing a good job as a play caller of not only running your counter tray when you're in sure, these seriously. formations. There were a lot of times where I felt last year, and I never felt it more than against the Cleveland Browns when Freddie Kitchens took over play calling. One of my biggest gripes with Garrett, outside of the obvious, the obvious stuff is he doesn't use enough pre snap motion. He's too tendon on, he's too dependent on running on second and long situations. He doesn't use enough, uh, like you said, wide receivers stacked. He doesn't use enough misdirection in his game. He doesn't use enough like, and trickery doesn't mean just mean like handing the ball to Golden Tate and having throw downfield. It means like what we said, like having a play look like it's designed to go to the right, and then you flip the ball back to Darius Tony in a one-on-one on the left, and you have some blockers jump out ahead of him and some kind of throwback screen. Like, there's plenty of ways to use misdirection in your offense. But in addition to all of that, one of the biggest gripes I had with him was specific play calling. There wasn't enough examples of him running out of obvious pass formations and pass situations yeah. and passing out of obvious run formations. And when we had Kitchens in, who was running Garrett's same crappy system, Kitchens found a way to multiple times in that first half run in spots I thought it looked like they were obviously going to pass and pass in spots I thought it looked like they were obviously going to run. And that, to me, is innate in a play caller. That has nothing. You can't teach that. You can't work on that in the offseason. You can't watch film and change your way. You're quick. You're on the spot as a play caller. You have a few seconds to get that play dialed in. You need to be able to bang, snap, think of that in your head and come up with the right call to trick a defense. You need to outguess that coordinator on the other side of the ball. And it is innate to me. You do not have enough time to to have it be anything else. I don't think it's studied at all. And to me, Garrett just doesn't have that. I think there's tons of proof with his terrible play calling in Dallas that everybody said was extremely predictable and bored out in the results. I know he had a couple highly ranked offenses, but he also had Tony Romo, Des Bryant, and a good running back core there. So it is what it is in that situation. And I don't give him much credit for that because you watch the film and you're not impressed. So ultimately, that's one of my concerns, I guess I would say still. like It's all there for him, like you said. And... Like you said, like, what's the personnel in that package? I mean, I don't want to stray away from your question too much. I guess I would say I still think we'll see some Gaden Smith in that regard as well. But they may try to, you know, not move. It's tough to say because, like you said, Colin Jusbia could get in there. I really ultimately don't know. They have so many different bodies they can move yeah. in in those personnel packages. Absolutely. But you, like you said, dude, or at least you insinuated at mm-hmm. it, football is just a game of chess, man. Yep. It's just a game of chess, and you need to be one step ahead of the opposing play caller. You need to be able to manipulate space, timing, numbers, advantages, all those kinds of things. And you can do that. The best way to do that is to use pre-snap motion to get the numbers that you want, to tip the defense off, to switch their assignments, to show their plays, to give your quarterback a better uh, better just portrait of what the defense is yes. trying to do on every single play i mean there's so many things going on pre-snap mentally there's so many things going on through daniel jones's minds through the center's mind or whoever sets the protection at that time and any little bit of information that you can get is so valuable but damn we strayed pretty far away from the draft so maybe we should get back to that but i think it's important to stay on this because it's so important to if the giants are going to be good or not like if they're going to be able to maximize these weapons yes. with their play calling and with their play designs because some things as simple as in my mind like having Kadarius tony on the field as your kind of flex weapon that you're trying to get into mismatches in the sense of what they thought they had with ingram last year already to me gives you more upside because if you're going to use misdirection let's say and have a hand a, a play action run designed to the right where saquon barkley's moving right right and flowing right and you have somebody crossing over on a deep over to the right say it's kenny galladay so defense with him if you throw that ball back to the left and it's Kadarius tony instead of ingram 
I've seen enough from Ingram to know that's not his game. His game isn't catch a ball, stop, restart in space and make people miss with force missed tackles or with creating yards after contact due to contact balance. Really, Ingram's game is just second gear and straight line. That, to me, is his whole game. But Tony, on the other hand, you throw a ball back to him in space, it's all about what you said, that ability to burst in that 10-yard range, but also that ability to force those missed tackles with moves just crazy it's just crazy random moves that you see you're like how did he think of that in space like also like you said the contact balance and even something you mentioned that doesn't even get talked about a lot when i've been reading and watching analysis on tony which is that ability to run so low to the ground that low center of gravity that makes it so hard for these tacklers to get the to get the leverage that they need to bring him down and so i just think having him on the field is actually really important i said earlier last podcast i don't think he'll get too many snaps but i think they're gonna have to find a way to make that evolve over the course of the season to the point where he is ultimately getting more snaps than someone like evan ingram what's the over under on passes thrown by Kadarius tony this season i'm gonna uh, set it at three and a half under for sure with jason garrett running the offense i don't know we saw golden tate do it how many passes the tape i think maybe only one but there could have been a second one or he tried to and then he ran around like a dope and then ended up like just you know throwing it away or getting like a negative one yard game yeah i don't know i don't remember if there was that second but you're right yeah three and a half a little aggressive i would go with two and a half though sure i can still i'll give you the over on two and a half maybe they'll they'll feel like they can get did was tony used in that regard at all at florida do we yeah 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 he was okay i don't know how many i saw through the film i watched i think i saw two or three Two, two passes in 2020, so I'm not sure about before that. So I'll have to see. I mean, there's a lot you can do with Tony, but I think he, the biggest, the person who should be the most happy about the Darius Tony added to the roster is Jason Garrett, without a doubt. I mean, yeah. Not Daniel Jones, it's Jason Garrett. And one thing about Daniel Jones and what you said before with calling out the protections, like there's so much going through your head pre-snap, and one of the best things you can do with pre-snap motion is help the quarterback design, uh, designate if it's zone or man coverage that he's facing, which is basically everything but also it could take some off his plate if you have some if you're using more pre-snap motion because he'll know that so he's thinking less about what the defense is going to kind of rotate into after the snap and more about setting the right protections because one argument is that the Giants protections have been a little bit lackluster because they have such a young quarterback and they went from Eli Manning who was really advanced in setting his protections and they went to a young quarterback who's not as advanced in setting his protections so one hope I have, and you can tell me if you feel like this has any validity to it or if this is kind of lower down on your list of importance, but that Daniel Jones could take a step forward in setting the protections, and that could be a way the Giants' offensive lines improves without even adding any actual talent to the roster and different names to the roster just by Daniel Jones improving. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the more reps that you end up getting, the more experience that you end up getting, the better you're going to get at something. So I absolutely think that's the case. And another thing about the pre-snap motion, I know we've been talking so much about pre-snap motion, but right. one of the things Daniel Jones is always looking for is not just, oh, is it man or zone coverage? Is, is it middle of the field closed, single high? or you know three high whatever you want to say mm-hmm. or middle of the field open defense and if you are moving guys from one side of the formation to the other that could tip the hand on what the safeties are actually going to do mm-hmm. it could show what a safety is going to do or if he's going to rotate coverage in a certain direction especially when you have receivers like Kenny Galladay who are bigger and may have to be cloud covered a lot so you can have an underneath guy in trail and then somebody over the top of him as well so those safeties i mean if you're shifting guys around and say if you're in a three by one set and then you just move to a two by two set and the safeties were wanting to go to the three by one set now that safety might have to change his assignment he a you could confuse him or b you could just he could just tip his hand by what he ends up doing if he drops down a little bit or if he shifts a little bit from the hash to the middle of the field so there's just nothing really too bad about 
doing the pre-snap motion as long as the offense knows what they're doing, which you would right. imagine they're professionals. They do know what you're doing. You're <laughs> putting the ball in the defense's court, and you're saying, hey, defense, you have to adjust to what we're doing. You had your assignments all well and good, and then as the play clock wore down, you started, you know, oh, we're going to show blitz. Okay, we're not blitzing. We're backing off. And then we changed what you originally saw. Now you have to change again, and then we hike the football catch you in a mistake i mean look at the 2019 giants defense man with james betcher how many times did we see pre-snap motion just manipulate deandre yes. baker and then it led to a blown coverage the giants need to utilize that dude yeah it's all the best teams are using pre-snap motion and misdirection in their offense the giants were one of the lowest teams in the nfl under jason garrett in pre-snap motion and misdirection just let that sink in for a second when you want to even think and consider defending someone like garrett and Again, they chose to opt with, we don't want to make Daniel Jones learn a new system over, we want to upgrade the system we have in place. That was their decision. I did not agree with it. Let's hope it works out for the best. And let's hope that, because now that we know, like after this class, I'm open to all possibilities, Nick, because I never thought Dave Gettleman would trade down. So now I'm open to the possibility that all the talk this offseason of Joe Judge bringing in different assistants from the college game to bring more elements of the college game into the Giants offense. I'm open to that being a big factor in yeah. this offense in 2021 because I've been proven that things are changing. The status quo is changing. And one more thing I want to say because you did mention something interesting about how defenses are likely going to have to play at least some and probably a lot of cloud coverage against Kenny Galladay this season because Kenny Galladay has earned the right to draw cloud coverage. That was something that no one in the Giants receiver core last year garnered there was yeah. no one on the field there was no cloud coverage against Darius Slayton there was no cloud cover I mean there were some examples of it but very yeah. little against Slayton Shepard Golden Tate and because of that it allowed them to use those safeties to impact the middle of the field in robber rules or to come up and blitz or to come up and stop underneath passes in the run game and now that's going to change it because it's going to take another safety out of the play and create more space for other players on the Giants absolutely and I'm not saying that the defenses are always going to cloud but no. the way you stop a hot receiver is by double teaming him some way so say Kenny Galladay you know first two drives he already has six catches and he's picking up first downs Mm -hmm. defensive coordinator is gonna be like all right we really need to kind of focus on him and that's going to open up like you said opportunities for other people but the big x factor here is somebody who's been on the Giants roster since 2018 and that's Saquon Barkley man because we saw in 2019 how defenses played Daniel Jones he had a much easier and Pat Shermer also helped but he had a much easier time throwing the footballs because there were eight guys in the box all the time right we're gonna stop Saquon Barkley Daniel Jones whatever he's a rookie we're gonna stop Saquon Barkley. Now defenses are going to struggle to stop Saquon Barkley when you have to worry about Kenny Galladay and now Darius freaking Tony. And that's not even mentioning Sterling Shepard and Darius Slayton, who were their best two weapons last year. I mean, think right. about it. Golden Tate played significant snaps last year. We don't even bring him up. We bring up CJ Board and Damian Ratley. Golden Tate lost a step, bro. He lost mm-hmm. a step. Now you yeah, have... <laughs> has he even been signed by another team I yet? don't think so, man. So, like, think about the just the sheer upgrade. As long as his offensive line progresses, like we hope, which is totally possible just because Dan and I are cautious, a little cautious about it, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We really hope that it does, but these are five players that have to kind of take that next step, like Dan said earlier. So we hope that does happen. And even if these guys go to the middle of the pack, if they're the 15th best offensive line with these weapons, this team should still win this division. Without a doubt, I, I again like we can get into those type of predictions later in the offseason, but I have high expectations for the Giants also. But I will say one, throw just a little bit of cold water on the Barkley coming back and defenses playing less heavy boxes because I did think and until he proves that they don't need to do this, 
that defense has found a little bit of a rhythm in playing Daniel Jones and actually crowding those boxes and shooting gaps and playing really aggressive against the Giants because he wasn't really making them pay down the field and he wasn't really about getting 2020 or 2020 okay and he wasn't you saw it against Tampa you saw it against Baltimore you saw it against Arizona really in all three of those games they were very aggressive front seven type game plans from the opposing coordinators and they basically just said you're not gonna have time to get the ball downfield you're not gonna be quick enough in your decision making to get the ball downfield you're not gonna diagnose what you see well enough post snap to get the ball downfield and all all of those things were true last season. Yeah, but a big reason, well, now you look at the 2021 Giants, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to do that as easily if you're going to be able to win at the line of scrimmage like Kenny Galladay can, like Sterling Shepard mm-hmm. can, or if you just have somebody taking the top off of the defense like a John Ross or like a Jalen Waddle, the Giants ended up getting him. Now that you have these other weapons, you may not want to have so many people in the middle of the field if you use those weapons correctly on the outside and outside of the hashes. So that's what we also need to see because... Jason Garrett needs to be able to adjust to these defenses. He needs to be able to attack them where they're most vulnerable. And I think we saw a little bit of it in that Buccaneers game with, uh, who was it? Yeah, Jamel, Garrett did a good job. Jamel in that Dean, game. I think his name mm-hmm. is, the cornerback. No one wanted to target uh, Carlton Davis that much because he was on a real hot streak last year until he saw Tyreek Hill. But they targeted Jamel Dean, and that was something that was pretty good. And that's something that I think I've seen a little bit, but I think you could still see a little bit more with this Jason Garrett team. And the big problem with the Giants last year was they just couldn't sustain any freaking drives, but, it seemed like. But that actually, for me goes a little different direction here because you're actually what you're saying is more on the Garrett lines I'm saying it more along the Daniel Jones lines okay, because yeah. even in that example the Tampa Bay game that's actually a perfect example of what I was trying to drive at Garrett did a great job of finding Jones those opportunities mm-hmm. and making the Bucks pay for playing so aggressively and Jones wasn't able to cash those in because he rushed those yeah. throws he didn't diagnose them quick enough and once he saw them he had to rush through his throw and his ball placement was off so to me it's on Jones to not only one improve his processing speed two improve his ball placement when he sped up when his processing sped up and three diagnose those pass protections before the snap better and get his offensive line in a better position to give him time so he doesn't have to fully speed up his processing yeah. and his and everything i'm not going to argue with you you're absolutely right but at the same time that was an outlier game because that was by mm-hmm. far his worst game that i've seen him do as a professional i felt like baltimore and arizona were were not exact examples but they were not great examples he, for jones he had the hobble i think the hobbled okay. uh hamstring played a big role especially in the cardinals game because the, the, the cardinals could, for sure yeah the guy yeah, could they didn't put look. any weight on that. No, no, play. that's true. He shouldn't he, have played. He shouldn't have played that game. That's a great point. And in the the Ravens wasn't much healthy. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm going to give him caveats on those for sure. But either way, I think regardless of yeah, all that, yeah. there are enough examples, even in other games, of just, again, those three areas needing to improve. One, post-snap processing, and his mental processing needs to speed up. His ball placement when his processing is sped up needs to improve. And then also, he just needs to do a better job of diagnosing, of getting his offensive line in a better position post-snap, I think. And he will. I think he's going to improve in that regard. Pre-snap. Pre-snap, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think he will in that regard a lot. I think just going into his third year, he's clearly works hard at this. He's That's one thing they knew they got. Yeah. They knew they got a hard worker, and so it has to start showing up, and I think it will. But I want to dive into one other key takeaway I had and see what you felt about this. In my mind, it kind of bounces back to this idea that I have that pass coverage is king in the NFL individuals who can cover the pass in man coverage especially especially press man which i think we're going to see a lot of from the giants this year it's king in the nfl and by continuing to build in that new england patriots 
Baltimore Ravens, Miami Dolphins blueprint. I mean, you look at those teams. The Ravens have been a consistently strong defense now for a long time without any big-name pass rushers. New England took a little step back last year in that regard, but it's mostly because they had 17, whatever they had, opt-out. Their entire starting defense basically opt-out. Miami, a little bit smaller sample size in that regard, but in that same mold without those big-name pass rushers, and yet consistently a strong defense. So what I'm thinking right now, and you can tell me how you feel about this, is after adding a Dory Jackson and after adding Aaron Robinson, I think is going to make an impact a lot quicker than people think. And after adding James Bradbury last offseason, Jabril Peppers two seasons before that, Logan Ryan last offseason, Xavier McKinney last offseason, who's essentially just another free rookie, and even Darnay Holmes for depth and injury purposes. We know he can play if he has to. I think the Giants are inching very close to having a consistently upper echelon defense in the NFL, top five, top 10, for a sustainable period of time because they're built in this model, similar to what we've seen from the Ravens, Patriots, and Dolphins. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's very fair, and they're all young other than Logan Ryan. I mean, James Bradbury's still south of 30 right now. I'm not sure if he's going to be around after the 2022 season, but they've really assembled, Dave Gettleman and this staff have really assembled a very, very nice secondary and you'll love to see it and when we talk about a lot of those bill belichick disciples what are what usually is uh with their defenses what coverage do they usually use they usually run man coverage we saw it with brian flores we see it with matt patricia when he was the coach of the detroit lions and i think with this aaron robinson addition and just with all the other additions especially a dory jackson I think that's what we're going to see. And we barely saw it last year. We did not see... We saw man coverage, obviously, on, like, third and short situations and stuff. And that's something that... And you're a little bit to more do. toward the end of the season. A little bit more towards the end of the season when Xavier McKinney yeah. came back. But the base coverage was basically three high. Right. Zone match type of principles. A little bit of man match. All those kind of things. So, I look at this edition, and we brought this up, and I just think we're going to see a, a different type of defense, but still with Patrick Graham's tutelage man his his teachings and they're still going to probably have those five-man pressure packages and they're still going to probably i mean this is actually i'm not even sure about this without dalvin thompson are they going to line up on those early downs and use those tight fronts that that quasi kind of bear from mm. with the four eye to the strength three tech to the weak side and then a nose and i think the nose would be danny shelton they want to keep dexter lawrence as that they usually use dexter lawrence i think as that three technique on the weak side he could use that quickness to get off but sometimes they used him as the four eye who could just kind of hold blocks up read the play see what's going to happen whereas the three tech usually is the guy who penetrates upfield more of a BJ Hill type of role. So I'm just I'm I'm curious to see if they're going to go with that same type of base personnel on those early downs. It's a good question. He has so much to work with now, Patrick Graham, that I'm not even sure exactly what direction he's going. To, I mean, there's going to be times where we're going to see no linebackers on the field. I think except for Aziz Ojolari and even like I think there could be times where we'll see Aziz and we'll see Ellerson Smith on the field as the only two linebackers like not often but occasionally where Blake will come off the field but even some spots where it'll just be those three and they'll rely on those three as their those as basically their second level defenders knowing they also have Jabril on the field to come up and help if something goes underneath on an obvious pass down and you know Xavier McKinney can also play that role because he's not the biggest guy McKinney but he plays super big and he was super physical and good at coming up and making tackles at Alabama and so with all that working in man I really do feel like this defense is on the precipice of becoming one of the NFL's best but more importantly that it's here to stay because they're focusing on what I think you should focus on which is pass coverage and it's not just that it's 
the way they've designed this defense, I think it gives them an advantage. I truly do think this is better than like your typical Jim Schwartz 4-3 where you have the wide nines and you have kind of that middle area of the field that's easy to kind of take advantage of. And you have kind of those thumping linebackers, a couple thumpers in there. You'll get somebody on the field at all times who's like more of a 4-3 traditional linebacker who's kind of a liability in all ways except for against the run. And the Giants have really set this defense up in my mind, schematically speaking, to stop the pass at all times and that's like what you should be doing you should be pretty much at all times stopping the pass like the there was even a year i believe it was recently i think where spags had a game plan i'm trying to remember if it was the chiefs with spags or if it was uh what wink martindale did but i'm i remember reading a, a deep dive x and nose onto this and i'm going to try to look it up nick because yeah. it's not a great <laughs> it's not great to not remember it but where a team basically designed an entire defensive game plan it was during one of the playoff games to give up the run basically like we will let you run on us the way we're going to play this and they ended up winning the game and having a really good defensive game by just basically bailing out from the run and letting the other team run the ball and in today's NFL, man, you just you can't win. You can you can give up a lot of decent chunk yardage in the run game and not get killed. Like not, I'm not talking 15, 20 yard chunk plays, but you can give up three, four, five yard gains. Okay, like for a decent but amount. Then of time. if you do that, you need to come up big on those third downs. Sure, yeah, you and need to be opportunistic. On you have to be opportunistic, yep. like you said, and and for that, you need to have guys who can cover and guys who can cover for more than for more than one, two and a half seconds, and then guys who can get there in the pass rush game. But I think the Giants are kind of moving that direction with the additions of Aziz Ojolari and Ellerson Smith. So I just feel like it's really on the precipice of becoming one of the best defense in the NFL sustainably. And we didn't even bring up Leonard Williams, arguably the best defender other than... Well, I mean, I think it's a fun debate who's a better defender, Leonard Williams or James Bradbury, to be honest. That is a fun debate. (laughs) I'll probably put up on the poll on Instagram sometime in the offseason. Who's a better defender or who's more valuable to the team? I think more valuable to the team that would be. Oof, I don't even know, man. That's that's tough. Yeah, I think they can both be poles. Anyways, that's uh, we 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 talked a lot more about big picture stuff, but I don't even think I'm done talking about that because we're talking a lot about press man, press man, press man. Mm-hmm. There's one player on this team who hasn't really ever been in a man coverage defense, and I'm wondering how that will affect him if they do implement those coverages, and that's Blake Martinez. Right. Yeah, Blake Martinez has played in a lot of zone defenses with Dom Capers back with the Packers, with the uh, Mike Pettin, and now last year with Patrick Graham. I don't think it's going to be a liability. I always thought the coverage thing with Blake Martinez was a little bit overblown. Mm. Everybody wanted the guy who ended up going to Oakland, Littleton, I think his name was, Corey Littleton. Yep. I was fine with that Blake Martinez signing because I knew he was going to be a huge impact and upgrade over Alex Ogletree, but a huge impact as a run defender. But He's going to be on the field if they do run more man coverage, and it's not something that he's overly accustomed to doing. That's a good point, and that could be an area where maybe we look at it and six weeks into the season we're like, okay, we're finally starting to see Blake Martinez struggle a little bit because he basically has had zero bad tape with the Giants. (laughs) It's been an incredible year for him, like a dream season for him. For somebody who obviously took his lumps during, with, like you said, with the Packers, in those man coverage situations when he was asked to do that, occasionally in the run game, obviously people point to that 49ers championship game two years ago, which wasn't really all his fault. Yeah, I watched. take a lot of blame for it. I watched that game, yeah. and, and a lot of it was his, the, the front in front of him was horrendous. Right. He has a couple bad plays, don't get me wrong, but that front yeah. was just getting manhandled by those guards. And I will say this, like as a fair warning to all Giants fans who are going to blast Martinez when you see him lose on a Texas route to a running back 
there's just no one really in the NFL who can cover those routes. Like, if you have a good running back running those arrow routes, which is, by the way, why we still want to see that, Jason Garrett, uh, <laughs> and any coordinator to ever coordinate the team, we still want to see Saquon Barkley running these Texas routes, these arrow routes, these option routes, these circle routes. Like, these still need to be incorporated. In addition to all the pre-snap stuff we said and all the jet sweep stuff we said, you still need to do that, too. We need more Mills. There's so much what they need. That's so much more to this offense of what it can be. But, again, like, if Blake Martinez loses in those reps i'm not going to kill him for it like which linebacker can cover a running back running an arrow route or something you know like it's just tough it's very tough and it's actually funny i brought that up on locked on giants i'm like hey jason garrett let's use some arrow yeah. routes let's get him in space and you're right it's a very very hard route i'm surprised we don't see it more and more in the nfl especially from barkley somebody who looks like he has the skill set to be able to do it yeah oh definitely definitely and hopefully that skill set comes back and it's the same right. skill set we saw in week one of 2020 all right nick let's wrap, wrap this up with some draft grades so i'm going to ask you to put a grade on every pick and then a grade for the overall draft and then defend your grades and i don't mean defend i guess just back up your grades so let's start with Kadarius tony yeah. give me a grade on that one. so for me i'm gonna take everything into account the trade down the mm-hmm. fact that they got the one the five and the four and with that i think i'm gonna have to say that that's an a man uh, maybe i'll go with b plus but uh I really like the addition of the player. You went out and you invested in a skilled position guy. I mean, some people can argue, hey, we don't necessarily need a skilled position guy, but I would say, but this guy is different. He is a different type of player than anybody that the Giants have on this roster right now. And I don't know how long Sterling Shepard is going to be a New York Giant. So I think you added a good football player, you traded down, you got a future one, and we talked about how important that is, not just to have extra capital, but just in case if Daniel Jones falls on his face, now you have more ammunition that you can trade up. So I really, really like that addition. So I'm probably going to go with a strong B+. Okay. For me, I'm doing the grades a little bit differently. The trades will all be factored in at the end for me for their overall grade. Okay. So I'll be grading the players based on the pick they were taking. So I'm not grading Kadaris Tony at 11 plus the trade. I'm grading him at 20. So assuming the Giants took him at 20 or, you know, accepting the Giants took him at 20, Kadaris Tony gets a B for me. Um, this one is – he wouldn't be my exact pick at receiver, but I'm starting to grow more to him. I think ultimately in the end I – started Elijah Moore, but I don't really love the fit for Elijah Moore on this specific team. So I would have probably taken Rashad Bateman with that pick if all said and done. Even though Tony had something different in the Giants offense, I think overall Bateman has a better chance to be a better player. I really like Bateman's game. Yeah. But having said all that, I still give it a solid B because like you said, it might not have been the biggest need, but if you look at this roster heading into the draft, the only real massive needs here were edge and offensive guard. Like, I mean, a case can be made by a lot of people that are smarter than me that tackle is still a need. Some people are just accepting that Matt Pert's going to be the next coming, but I don't, I'd love him to be. But remember, he was the 99th overall pick, and tackles taken after 45 overall have a really bad track record in the NFL. I'm talking like sub 10% hit rate. Yeah. We're not talking about like 50 50. You have a, even flip a coin on Matt Pert. Like, and we think he can beat those odds. Like, I like Matt Pert a lot. I'm giving him like probably a 60 70% chance of becoming a starting level tackle for someone picked in a range that should be 10% based on the history of the NFL but again tackle could be made but at 20 there were no tackles I liked left on the board there were no edges I thought that I would take over Kadarius Tony personally I mean Aziz you can put into the mix but I think I'd rather take the chance on the skill guy there so I'm giving it a solid B it's not the guy I would take but it's still one of the playmakers I would take all right let's move on to round two Aziz Ojolari, what's your grade there? That'd be an A plus. I mean, you got him at fifty. He, I mean, you did trade back for him, but if we w- were going to ignore that, you still got this guy in the second round when he was 
a lot of people thought a first round value. Well, you can stick to your grading scale. That's just how I'm. No, but it, do it, it doesn't matter. It's going to be yeah. an A plus anyway for Aziz Ojolari. Okay, for me, Aziz Ojolari A plus for short fifty overall. I would have been fine taking Aziz Ojolari at twenty overall. I didn't want him at eleven. I thought that was a little too rich. Twenty, I would have liked more so because I thought he had such a good fit for this system. I didn't think he was one of the twenty best players overall, but I thought when you also add in the fact that he's just such a perfect fit for Graham's system, it would rise him to me being solid value at twenty. But at fifty, it's just slam dunk. Like I said earlier, this might be the best value in the Dave Gettleman regime era. This might be the best value dating back to Odo Beckham at thirteen overall, or was it fourteen overall? One of the two. Donald was fourteen, right, and Beckham was thirteen. I believe, or... Are you talking about the 2014 draft? I believe it was the 13th pick. 13th overall, okay. So dating back to that pick, it might be their best value overall, even dating back past the Gettleman error. So A-plus for me there. All right, Aaron Robinson here. uh, We're at at 71 overall, Nick. What's your grade there? Yeah, Beckham was actually 12. We're both stupid. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, Aaron Robinson, I think I'm going to give it a strong B, to be honest. You traded Mm -hmm. up to get it. Uh, I think a lot of people could argue that you didn't necessarily need secondary and you had guys like Ben Cleveland that were still on the board there in the third round. But I, I really like the player. I liked everything I've seen from the player. So I think a strong B, and I could be definitely be swayed into a B-plus for Aaron Robinson, who may fit the coverages that Patrick Graham really wants to run a little bit more this year. So I think, uh, I think I'm actually going to go with a B-plus. Yeah, I'm going B plus, and I almost want to move this up to A minus. I am a pure best player available type drafter. I believe you should be looking for players that can be part of your franchise for five or ten years at every five, hopefully ten years at every single pick. So I liked him better than any guard who was on the board at this time. And I think because I liked him better than any guard that was on the board at the time, he was the right pick for sure for the Giants. And they love this kid. They think he's going to give them the ability to play press man coverage, something they weren't able to do out of the slot often last season with a smaller cornerback and not as quick of a cornerback in short spaces as Darnay Holmes. And I think because of what they think he's going to add to this defense, and if he can add that to his defense, which I think he can, honestly, pretty early on, he really could end up being the A minus A, A plus range of a draft pick, but I'm going to give it a bleed plus for now just because it meant not taking an offensive lineman in the first three rounds, which I, is still something I didn't love doing just in general, not going any offensive line. And because obviously he is a slot only player, which some people tend to not value as much as others. And I think there's some, ca- and again, the Giants said they think he can play outside on the boundary. I know you're a little bit, not skeptical, but you don't think that's probably his best fit. Probably not his best yeah. fit, especially. I mean, he could do it. I don't think it's. Could he do way. it better than Julian Love did at the end of last year? In your yeah, mind, probably. yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah, but and uh, that's pretty capable. Dory Jackson is. That's where I think yes. he should go. Yeah, for sure. In an, in another world, maybe he could for the Giants. But even with all that said, some people would knock you for taking a slot type player that early. I don't think so. I think in today's NFL, slot corner having a great slot corner is a really good value. These are essentially starters. No one's running seven-man base, seven-man front bases anymore in the NFL. It's it's nickel 70% of the time and dime some of the other 30%. And then there's a few snaps in base basically a game. There's 20% maybe snaps in base if you're lucky in these days in the NFL. So these are starters now. Okay, Ellerson Smith, their fourth round pick. What's your grade there? Yeah, for Ellerson, for me, that's probably going to be an A+. Plus. Okay. An A, A+, plus just because, I mean, I, I believe there's just a lot of upside with this player. I think he's going to be able to really help the ability to generate pressure not just from winning one-on-one up the arc but because of the twists and the stunts and the fact that he's incredibly long and he's quick and he has active hands and he knows how to string moves together so for me at that value 116 i think that's an a plus man 
Yeah, I'm going to give Ellerson an A. Just a little lower than A+, plus, but I could probably be talked into and convinced on an A-plus on this one. I think for all the reasons you mentioned, plus I think he's going to be shadily solid at dropping in coverage, which people are not expecting from him. But I think he's that level athlete to the point where his length combined with his athleticism is actually going to make him an asset over someone like um, the kid they had last year, Kyler Fackrell, dropping into those short zones and coverage. I actually think he's going to when he gets those snaps, is going to actually be more advantageous to have someone like Ellerson Smith on the field with that kind of length and athleticism versus like a Kyler Fackrell or a Carter, Carter Coughlin or even to some extent a Cam Brown, though he was a bit long as well there. So I think there's added secret hidden value in that. I think the only reason probably it's not A-plus for me off the bat would be that I think there are some concerns early on if he can be a two-way player, if he can set the edge, and if he has the kind of strength to hold up at the point of attack. And because he played at a lower level of competition, there's always potential for the jump to not be made. So with those factors in, it's it's this or it's neither here or there, but I'm gonna give that one an A. I think that's fair, yeah. Okay, let's move to Gary Brightwell, their sixth round pick at running back. Yeah, so for Brightwell, I'm probably just gonna go with a C. They see something in his phys- physical running style. I-, I see somebody who's probably not gonna have an impact in pass protection as much or definitely not as a receiver, but pass protection, his profile suggests that he could, but you turn on some of his tape and he's getting blown up a little bit. Like He mm. definitely needs to lower that center of gravity, absorb the contact, explode low to high a little bit because he seems like he's getting pushed around a little bit. But like I said, maybe with some technical refinement, he could be able to do that. He has the frame. He's like five foot 11, 218 pounds. It's a thick running back. Love that he runs really, really hard. Love the competitive toughness of the player. Can't catch the football. That's going to be a problem. Ultimately, I think this is just a a special teams type of pick so for me i'm just gonna go with a c at, at this point with somebody like gary brightwell i think that's fair i'm gonna go with a c plus here because ultimately i think the ideal goal of this pick was not to find a good running back it was to find a really great special teams player so for that reason alone i'll give it a c plus but it's never going to go higher than that for me because i think they left two really talented running backs on the board by taking this kid i think they left my boy khalil herbert who i see shades of tiki barber and and Maurice Jones Drew when I watch him on film I think he's going to be a stud in the NFL and Jamar Jefferson who a lot of people that I one person I really trust compared him really favorably to D'Angelo Williams and when I watch him he's a really good running back as well so I think they literally left two really good runners on the field and when you factor that in with the fact that Gary Brightmull is a, a, a net zero as a receiver and in the passing game is currently not a good pass protector like you said I guess he kind of has the profile to suggest maybe he could be but that's a stretch and honestly from his running style yes it's physical and yes he's like has a little bit better like stop and start and kind of elusiveness than you would expect for someone his size it's also against pac 12 defenders and like that jump to the nfl could really eliminate all of that so there to me is a good chance he's just a special teams only player which is okay but like i'd just be swinging for a little bit more it's never going to go too high of a grade for me i saw someone on twitter say that he's going to be the giants brandon bolden i was like ah okay yeah, I-, I can see but brandon bolden was a good receiver actually and he, he was a, pretty he was a plus in the passing game this guy doesn't really project like a plus in the passing game so i think that's actually a little bit of a stretch well, just from a special team standpoint. Yeah, yeah, from just that standpoint. And maybe fine. from the, hopefully from the standpoint that he's going to find his way on the field and score three touchdowns or something <laughs> like that. that. That's not going to be, that's not going to make Give me Saquon, the Jonas Gray treatment. <laughs> that won't make Saquon Barkley fantasy owners very happy. I can say that Absolutely. with certainty, though. I probably shouldn't even mention fantasy football on this podcast because it has led in the past to some devastating, just devastating reviews from some of you. Um, hopefully that doesn't continue. All right, last player here, Rotarius Williams, the cornerback in the last pick of the sixth round. Yeah, for Rodarius Williams, for me, it would just be a, I'm going to go with a B. 
I think. I think it's a solid pick, a long defender. I don't think he's that great of an athlete, has press man background at Oklahoma State. I think he shows actually pretty good instincts in off-man coverage, just reading route combinations. Definitely used some pattern match, zone match principles over there at Oklahoma State, which you'd love to see. Um, he actually didn't measure as long as you would ex- as like I expected, but he actually plays longer. You know, right. really good playing through the catch point, getting his hand in to disrupt uh, passes going to the wide receiver. So I, I liked what I saw from that standpoint. Love the fact that he's very very aggressive as a tackler, but. At the NFL against NFL receivers who can release off the line of scrimmage, if you don't have that lateral agility or that quickness, mm-hmm. and if you're a little high cut, and a little tight in the hips, you might get taken advantage of. So this guy's probably just going to end up being a special teamer. I think he could crack the roster. Definitely not a given. He's probably going to be battling with one of the last secondary spots with guys like Sam Beal and Isaac Yidem. So we'll see what ends up happening with him. So I'm just going to give it a B. I mean, this is the 201st pick, and mm-hmm. he has some things on tape that I do appreciate. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm going to give it a B minus. I can be convinced all to go all the way down to C plus though, because I think ultimately they made this pick because they felt like they had a really a much better grade on him than players who were around that range at other positions. But ultimately, while I'm for that most of the time, almost always, I think with what they did at cornerback this off season and last off season, it just seems like a little bit too uh, a little bit too much there going on there at the cornerback position. Like it seems like this to me, Rodarius Williams seems like a very obvious candidate to just not make this roster for sure this season and be a definite practice squad player. So would I maybe rather them take a swing at offensive line there? Maybe though I don't really think that could happen. Would I maybe rather them take a swing though as like the Donovan People Jones of that round? For example, you tell me Seth Williams is on the board there. I'd take a swing on Seth Williams over him. I think Seth Williams is a better chance of making an impact in the red zone, making the roster over something like this. A Daz Newsome type, who was also drafted a little bit after the Giants selected Williams. Even Shai Smith, to an, ex- for, to an extent, who I think has some upside, and we've talked about him on past podcasts. Now, again, ultimately, I'm not going to th- fret too much over this because it could just be someone they think can be a really big impactor on special teams. And ultimately, that could be worth more to the Giants, in my mind, than a wide receiver who may ultimately not make the thing but just me i think i'd gamble on a different position there yeah you can see a lot of senior bowl guys coming off the board in the <clears> sixth <throat> seventh rounds all those guys who probably wouldn't have been drafted if they didn't attend that event but since teams got to talk with them and get to know them a little bit they bring them in and we had a receiver actually after rodarius williams go named racy mcmath out of lsu he was down at the senior bowl yeah and there was another receiver out of oklahoma state who wasn't drafted named dylan stoner <laughs> we got all the cool names coming out man yeah and you're right i mean like all teams took advantage of what they had to work with and what they had to work with here was just the senior bowl when it comes to meeting these prospects face to face it's crazy it was a really weird draft season and i know the giants really put a priority on drafting players they had a chance to meet with face to face absolutely and looking through the guys who are undrafted some of the guys who were at the Senior Bowl, Sage Surratt, Marvin Wilson, DJ Daniel, mm-hmm. uh, Kate Johnson, who was a, who was really yeah, good at the wow. Senior Bowl practices. I was a little surprised by that. Justin Hilliard didn't get drafted. Brian Mills, he Marian was at the Terry. Senior Bowl. Was, was he at the Senior Bowl, Tamarian Terry? Oh, he might have not been at the Senior Bowl. I don't yeah. think he was at the Senior Bowl, but he's also a talented guy. Jamie Newman, Patty Fisher. Uh, Patty Fisher didn't end up getting drafted, man. I, I've been hearing about Patty Fisher from my Northwestern friends since this kid must have been like a freshman or something. I was like, this guy's still in school? He's literally like the defensive Hunter Renfro, man. It's awesome. Like, this guy's still in school? Holy crap. I love it. All right, Nick, let's back it up now, a little 30,000-foot view, give you an overall grade for the Giants' 2021 NFL draft. For me, it would just be an A. 
Okay. It, it's an A. I mean, it would be an A plus if I'm factoring in. I think those trade downs. Maybe not just because no, I'm not going to get factoring in everything. Factoring in everything. I'm I'm actually still probably I'm going to go with an A minus because I still have those concerns about the interior offensive line. And like we said earlier in the podcast, I'm not going to slam the Giants for not investing there. The circumstances just didn't materialize. But I can't give it an A plus with Will Hernandez and Shane Lemieux and Zach Fulton as the backup as the offensive guard. They didn't invest in that position, and that could be a problem for the 2021 Giants. But I'm still going to give it an A because I think it was a fantastic draft and I love the capital they got. Yeah, and I'm going to give it an A plus because just because the simple fact that I just didn't feel like there was a spot where they could have taken an offensive lineman I would have won over the ones they went with. So I'm not going to blame them for the totality of where the offensive line is at. I'm sorry, I'm not going to blame the draft part of their offseason for that. Like in my mind, they could have simply not signed somebody like Kyle Rudolph and maybe also not signed somebody like John Ross mixed and matched a little bit and dipped a little bit more into their future cap and kept someone like Zeitler on the roster and that would have been something that can maybe knock them for a little bit or that would knock an overall offseason type grade down a little bit but if we're just grading the draft there's not too many areas where I thought they should have went O-line and they didn't now again I will say that I mean I don't love that they end the draft and free agency with this offensive line but just you know evaluating this draft in a vacuum it's an a plus for me because honestly if you told me they came out of the first two rounds with Darius Tony and Aziz Ojolari and they didn't make any trades I would have been like that's a solid draft that's maybe a b b minus b type range but when you also then acquire a first round pick from a team that's going to either be starting Andy Dalton or a rookie quarterback behind an offensive line that's been trending down for multiple years and added zero impact players to the offensive line at all this offseason I'm looking at a Bears offense that might not be able to move the ball very consistently. To go along with their defense, it's pretty good, but not that amazing when you consider the, the, the players they've lost in that secondary. And they lost John Pagano. And they lost John Pagano, who's a really good coordinator. So that when you factor in the value and potential value of that pick, plus the fourth rounder next year, plus the third rounder next year from the Dolphins— there's just so much that they gained in addition to these big four players that they had in Smith, Robinson, Ojolari, and Tony. And so for me, this is the best draft. I said it on Twitter. I can't remember a draft I came out more happy than than uh, more happy from than this draft. And that dates back to the Reese years. That dates back to all of the Gettleman's years. This is my favorite draft ever covering the Giants. Dan, that's the second year in a row. Our second year together. We've said that about this New yeah. York Giants. We said that about last year's draft. Cause last I, year's draft's working out pretty solid so far. It yeah. is. It, it's working out fantastically, man. I, I will say, I, with the exception of they should have drafted, and people are going to hate to hear this. Some people will. But it's the damn truth. They should have drafted Tristan Worse over Andrew Thomas. I'm sorry to say the truth, guys. Like You literally ask all 31 analysts from other teams. They're going to tell you Tristan Worse was the clear-cut, obvious best tackle in that class. And John Ledyard said he should have been Offensive Rookie of the Year last year, and I'm with him. He made the biggest impact of any offensive rookie on a Super Bowl team. Super Bowl team. Christian Wirfs is my pick for offensive rookie of the 2020 season. He deserved that. He didn't get it. He deserved that. So with the exception of that, but that's hindsight in some regard too because, you know, at the time, we, we if gun was to our head, we would have probably – we were going to try to trade down so we could get any of those four tackles that fell. I know that would have been our ideal goal, Nick, but we probably, gun to our head, would have both taken Jedrick Wills there over Wirfs. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and I'm fine with that. At the same time, I had, I think, one Iowa All-22, and I had, like, yeah. six Alabama. So, yeah, so it was a little <laughs> difficult from that standpoint, but I'm not copping out of it from what I saw. I mean, I did see some yeah. technical flaws with Tristan Wirfs, and I'm 100% fine saying that, but he looked phenomenal yeah. this entire season from everything that I've heard and the little bit that I have seen of Buccaneers All-22. You want to know something before we get out of here, though? That's kind of That kind of sucks. Two quarterbacks were drafted after the Giants pick at four. Nobody traded up, you know? 
Right. I mean, I don't know if people were calling to jump the Miami Dolphins who were at five, mm. but like I just feel like in a different year that 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 pick would have been maybe a higher priority. Maybe if Tua didn't end up hurting his hip, it would have been. Yeah, but, or if Herbert had said. better film in that final oh my season, gosth. he would have been second overall. Was the th- yeah, no, no, he would have been easy set potentially first. Overall. Potentially like, first. Some people would take Herbert over Tua. I'm sorry, Herbert over Burrow right now. I'm not sure where I'm at on that. I probably still lean Burrow. I think term. I do too. But some people would, and in addition to that. And that goes back to the worst thing. It's like, it's hard to predict sometimes with these guys because Wirtz had those technical flaws. Like, you weren't the only one in seeing that. A lot of analysts saw that. And yet, somehow, he was able to snap fix those with the Bucks. Like, when he got that NFL coaching, it might be a good lesson to take away on kind of just betting on traits and talent in a lot of spots because, and, and kind of leaning on your coaching to really help improve these players. Same thing happened with Herbert, you know? Like, he had a lot of bad film, Justin Herbert, in that last year at Oregon. And then, snap, he's a different quarterback when he gets to the NFL with good coaching. So, people Loved him in that Pac-12 championship game, though. The People... one against Wisconsin, or no? No, no, no. It was yeah, no, no it was he Pac- wasn't that good in that one. Yeah, Pac-12. Oh, the Pac-12 championship. Yeah. I was thinking of the Rose Bowl, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's our final draft grades. That's our final draft recap for the 2021 NFL draft. Nick gives it an A. I give it an A+. Plus. Um, or did you give it an A- minus or A-? A? I'm going to go with A. A, all right. Nick's going A. I'm going A+. Plus. I'm thrilled. I'm ecstatic about this team. I mean, about this draft. I like it better, a lot better than last year's, too. I know. I guess I came out thinking that was the best one of the Gettleman era. This one, I think, is the best one, not only the Gettleman era, but maybe even including a lot of those Jerry Reese drafts, to be honest, especially looking back in hindsight on those Reese drafts, it seems to certainly be the case. Um, so that's all we have for today's show on the Big Blue Banter Podcast. As always, if you want to help us grow, please, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. We've been slowing down on the rating and reviews. Uh, we haven't had too many ratings or reviews on iTunes lately. So if you haven't taken the time to rate or review us on iTunes, please help us grow the show by heading over to iTunes and hitting that rating and review button and leaving us a note. If you leave us a note that includes a question, we'll answer it on the podcast. We have no questions, new questions written in this show, so there's nothing to really go over. But again, if somebody wants to write a review and add a question, and we'll answer it. Also, please follow us on Instagram at nybigbluebanter. Head over to your Instagram app now. I know you waste some time on that app because I know I do. I waste way too much time looking at that garbage but click the follow button because we don't give garbage we give good stuff fun polls engagements new episodes even some film breakdowns on there so there's a lot of good stuff there also follow us on youtube at big blue banter type in big blue banter on your youtube browser you'll see our logo hit subscribe like start to look at those videos more will be coming and then finally join us every tuesday night at 8 p.m eastern time on the locker room app i will be tweeting out a link every tuesday and that's a live Q&A show. So it goes for about 45 minutes. The last one went for an hour. We'll sit there. We'll let you guys join. You hit request to speak. You guys talk to us and you guys ask us questions and we go back and forth as if you were on the show, as if you were on the podcast with us. So it's a lot of fun. Join us there. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week and we'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.